Good evening and welcome back to the fourth installment of Teaching Peace, brought to you by the New York City Council of Mennonite Churches in partnership with the Groundswell Group and the Brooklyn Peace Center. This series is made possible through Eastern Mennonite University's Lilly Foundation grant, Helping Pastors to Thrive. This online series meets every Tuesday at 5 p.m. about an hour. In this series, we're wrestling with ideas related to bearing witness to the power of peace building. It is our hope that each of you might become more encouraged for the work at hand. The word peace in the Holy Scriptures is shalom. This deep peace is not merely the absence of violence, rather it is a complete and holistic approach to life and our relationships with each other and creation. Over the course of this online series, we will hear from leaders in the field of peace, peace building and wrestle with some of these weighty topics. I'm Addie Banks and I serve as the chairperson of the Committee of the New York of the Education Committee of the New York Council of Mennonite Churches and Executive Director of the Groundswell Group, the Peace and Justice Resource Center, and our co-host Jason Storbakken, pastor at Manhattan Mennonite and director of the Brooklyn Peace Center, is taking a break tonight. And our co-host is Greg Vanderbilt. Greg? Yeah, good, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Peace. Um, my name is Greg Vanderbilt. I am currently a student at Union Theological Seminary here in New York City. And before I came to New York, I was uh, with MCC in Indonesia. And so I just want to say a special greeting to several Indonesians who are listening to us this evening, even though the sun is not up yet. We have um, Spanish language interpretation offered by Julio Pabon. And to access him at the lower right of your screen, you can see a uh, uh, globe symbol, and if you click on that, it will take you into the room where he is offering simultaneous translation. Um, also, Zoom allows us to receive questions from you, all of you who are joining us. You can, you may use either the chat box or the Q&A function, and Addie and I and Elizabeth will read the questions, and then uh, Elizabeth will answer as we can. So our plan is to go for about an hour this evening, and then at the end, for those pastors that are interested, we will open a chat room with, with our speaker. So it, it's so exciting for me to introduce our speaker, um, Elizabeth Soto Albrecht, and to, for me to meet her. I, I have kind of Damascus Road moment with Elizabeth. I remember very, uh, very strongly hearing her preach at, at the Mennonite World Conference in Asuncion in Paraguay in 2009. And thinking to myself, wow, this, the Mennonite church has a distinctive contribution to make in the world, and maybe I can be part of it. So it's a great joy all these years later to meet you kind of in person um, through this medium. I think uh, many will know Elizabeth Soto Albrecht as a theologian and a church leader, an educator, counselor, chaplain, administrator, and leader in the local and national church including um, serving as the first Latinx and one of the first women moderators of Mennonite Church USA. She is a resident of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a member of the Laurel Street Mennonite Church and a longtime uh, teacher at Lancaster Theological Seminary, where she has been 
an instructor, field education supervisor, and global theological education advisor. Earlier, she served in Colombia, where she directed the Latin American Anabaptist Resources Center in Bogota and was dean of the Mennonite Seminary. And she brings all these experiences to what she's doing. Elizabeth Sotobrek encountered the Mennonites as a teenager in Puerto Rico, and she remains connected with the churches there, including her first home church, the Iglesia Menonita El Buen Pastor in Hatillo, where she was baptized. She has earned degrees in both health education and theology, including in 2005, her doctorate of ministry from the International Feminist Doctor of Ministry program at San Francisco Theological Seminary. And her book, um, Family Violence, Reclaiming a Theology of Nonviolence, which was published um, by Orbis in 2008, as well as the curriculum for church study called Seek Peace and Pursue It, Women, Faith, and Family Care, grew out of these studies, along with her Mennonite commitment and her experiences in Latin America and her engagement with the Latinx communities in the US and Canada. She is one of the editors of a new collection that a lot of us are very excited to wait for, um, forthcoming in September, entitled Liberating the Politics of Jesus, which you can see from the subtitle, offers us quite some new things to take us well beyond that famous phrase, renewing peace theology through the wisdom of women. So Elizabeth Soto-Albrecht, we're so happy to welcome you to Teaching Peace. Thank you. We like to begin with this question. How do you define peace? How do you define peace? Um, so it's a quite elementary question, quite complex at the same time. In um, my, I, my uh, 42 years in the Mennonite church and what I have lived as a Latina, both in my country and outside my country, I found um, uh, that the true meaning of peace, shalom, has to be um, always, I do this formula in which shalom, peace is, um, we, we say it in Spanish, Can I, I'll do this formula because it's all with S, it's uh, sanidad, which is healing, salvación, which is salvation, in his shalom. shalom. So for me, uh, in shalom is better my sense of, of salvation, my sense of healing, um, my, my sense of being um, by the mercy of God uh, through my friend Jesus. Um, I can live out my salvation. So um, shalom has, is in the Old Testament, in its old Greek essence, is a holistic integration we say in Spanish, integral. Um, it's, and it's not only like um, uh, Abby read, the absent of uh, uh, peace as the essence uh, in the midst of the complexities and in the midst of, of war. And there is where uh, I can better understand peace, not in times of supposedly outside peace. So it's just a way of going around it. Say it's a holistic approach. Thank you, Elizabeth. 
How have you been influenced by the peace teachings of Jesus? I love my friend Jesus. Um, I, I remember feeling in love with Jesus, my first heartwarming experience as a Pentecostal, really understanding that Jesus was literature encounter, but it was a real person calling me into repentance. Um, so Jesus has uh, this journey with the last four years of four, 40 years of life is re-encountering Jesus in the other, re-encountering Jesus in my own life, uh, and learning each time about Jesus. Um, he's a everlasting companion. He is my friend. And I cannot live without his teaching in my heart, in which I am constantly trying to work with him. So Jesus informs who I am, uh, inspires me. The true uh, nature of the humanity of Jesus, and we talk about Jesus being equally human, human that understood what suffering and um, making mistakes is all about. And that's the one that I, I follow in scripture and in spirit. I'd, I'd like to ask a little bit more autobiographically. Um, when, when did you experience a call to commitment to nonviolence? Hmm. And maybe how do we hear it too? Yeah, yeah, good question. Well, like many churchgoers within the Mennonite church, it was embedded um, the, 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 the teachings of Jesus were here, and I thought I've had it in my heart, but it was, it's been in moments in which I've been challenged in my humanity to respond with violence. When I have had to have all the strength inside my soul to keep my hands, my voice, my words to myself. So in that, in those conversions, I said it is possible to be nonviolence in the midst of violence. I have different moments. I would say being tested is, as a parent. And if you read the book, I, I only, which my toddler hits me in the face. Now, as Latina, <laughs> you don't touch any people's face, right? And I hit her back uh, as I was trying to correct her. When I understood the degree of my violence inflicted in such a small body, there was a moment of conversion, a, a moment of saying, I will never do this to any child. To understand the power that lays inside of me and the violence that laid inside of me. In the midst, in Colombia, in the midst of war, living there for seven years, I knew that uh, lifting up destruction was my choice. But I knew I had the weapon of my convictions and my life to present. Um, I, we needed to talk about, often my husband and I, if we get kidnapped by the guerrillas or the left, then what would we do? And, um, and went through many of those scenarios I even talked about with my daughters. In moments in which I have approached sexual abusers and the human person inside of me just wants to lash verbally and physically and having to restrain myself and knowing that it is only possible 
through the power of the Holy Spirit to say there are other alternatives. So it's been life experience that have taught me, uh, moved me into this conversion. And I will say, it is an everyday commitment because we are full of um, things that surround us that will trigger me into wanting to do other that is not nonviolence. But in the convincing, trying to look for that other alternatives. For it, so is looking, looking for the power that the Holy Spirit has set inside of me and be convinced that there are other ways. There has to be other ways. Thank you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you said that, I believe this was in a Canadian Mennonite publication that you, you shared this, that you have two identities that you hold very dear to your heart. Your Christian identity as an Anabaptist and the other is your Latina identity as a, a woman and your culture. You said both of these inform and shape you as a servant of God. As you experience the church's growth and diversity, what are some of the practices you believe create attitudes and behaviors of inclusion so that everyone gets a seat at the table? Uh, let me start with the attitude of always knowing there is someone missing around the table. In understanding, I like the image of Letty Russell church in the realm. Uh, she was one of my professors and she passed away several years ago. Um, and I was inspired by her true Christian life as well. She was not a Baptist. She was a wonderful Presbyterian minister. But I always thought her sense of always to include other people, to ask the questions, who's missing around my table? <laughs> who's missing in my life? Who am I excluding and why? Who am I afraid of and why? So the attitude of, of saying to create space always intentionally, because I have felt an occasion as a Latina excluded. And I know how that feels. And I don't want that for any human being, uh, let it be their sexual orientation, color of their skin, or even if I cannot speak their language. Um, so the sense of um, open table and, and because I feel I need that, that other person in my life. So it's keeping my mind and my heart open for the other. Uh, Fernando Segovia talks about the sickness of otherness. So otherness can be done in a negative way and he is Cuban American Catholic writer redeems the concept of that he embraces his otherness sacredness of his otherness as he too sees the sacredness of others and the importance of having those around the table. Mm. Uh, it doesn't it will be always comfortable and it's not uh, utopia. It is possible because Jesus sat in tables that even his own Jews were not, would, would feel that it was dirty, that it was not proper for his culture or his manhood. Um, so it's that um, allowed, even feeling uncomfortable. Why am I uncomfortable with this person? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Limitations of my own humanity. 
So that, that uncomfortable moment, it tells us the limits of our identity, as well as the experiences that, yeah, that have brought us to that point. Yeah, that's very helpful. We, we'd like to ask you about, about women doing peace theology. This is especially coming from the book that, that you're, that's about to be published, but how do you see women um, nowadays renewing peace theology or crossing boundaries or I think uh, challenging and taking apart histories, some of which Mennonites are struggling with? How, how are women renewing peace theology in, in uh, our, our time? Well, um, first of all, uh, it took me all these, well, at least the last 20 years in which we we're saying, how do we do theology? How do we do theology different? So living in Colombia and naming that, hearing my sisters and how they do it in academia, in church life. And it came to a point that we do theology in unique and, and in a very uh, interesting way. We don't do necessary theology with our head. <laughs> we do theology with our bodies. Yeah. Uh, we do theology with ourselves, with our social reality, our sexuality, our spirituality. Um, and when I, I, and then I ask, how how do I do theology as well? Mm -hmm. uh, when it's written, when it's when I start writing it, because I have lived something. It's not doesn't come out of just sitting down. What Gustavo Gutierrez talked about theology from the the, the escritorio from the, the your desk. It comes from real life, mm -hmm. having made mistakes, having recorrected them, and learning. So mm -hmm. um, in this aspect, um, I wanted to in th this this project, liberating the politics of Jesus, has been a twelve years project. Wow. And uh, it was always with me um, because I wanted uh, to find women. I wanted to catch them living up their theology, not not as they were teaching, but as they were loving their students and understanding their students, as they were trying to um, live on difficult situations. So this came uh, the idea then to just invite uh, a few people that knew how to write, that I uh, trusted their voices, it would be that they, they could have something different to say. And the question is, how, um, how do you live out the, the, the politics of Jesus? How is it? So I found Ari Rosano in Colombia saying, now that we have done the peace treaty, now the real tough work uh, working on this, uh, on these um, implementations, and it's, it's been church people, to indigenous, to Afro-Caribbean people, and these women have really grounding this. Uh, other people in South Africa, like Karen Suderman as well, um, living after apartheid, we think, okay, now peace is of what has been destroyed. Um, and then, therefore, uh, other people are working with uh, racism and classism and so forth. Um, so here came, how do we push those boundaries? Um, so we, we place ourselves on the, on the line. Um, 
We define those boundaries by crossing them or not, um, by uh, pushing them forward or not, by naming them or not, um, and understanding, uh, I teach boundaries, healthy boundaries for ministers in Spanish. And actually, we're in the middle right now of rewriting the curriculum in Spanish for Anabaptists, and we taught that, Alice Lozano and I, in Bogota, Colombia, in November, and we talked the importance of keeping healthy boundaries all we call it and the importance of having those set lines and those limitations so sometimes i have to draw them for the well-being of myself and then we teach them what does that mean the challenge has been here is when you're drawing uh renew uh reliving what or renewing the, the, the peace theology and the history and so forth, we come in, so what is the dominant culture? So what is the, uh, which has been predominantly male-oriented, um, like we have lived a lot there in Latin America, heterosexual, high education, higher levels of economics, um, European, American way of knowing, uh, mm. so so those, those set boundaries has limit us. And then we say, no, there are other ways of knowing. Um, there are other ways of encountering the truth. Uh, and, and we know the truth is here with us. So in that aspect, uh, those boundaries have been renaming them for ourselves and saying, we have been always in the peacemaking aspect as women, but we... We bring other elements like placing our bodies on the line. So, I think you you introduce a term just praxis. Could they, you say what that is? Yeah, I I have been lately just enchanted with the concept of justice, or in español justicia. And starting, well, you know what? I don't know what this is. What it means? So I start looking in the Old Testament and just. And then all of a sudden came to me that and something I've learned in Colombia, Justa Paz, and we have an agency that before peace, we justice. We truly need to work to make things right that has been done wrong. And then I said, you know, all my life, I've been really fighting for justice, fighting for the abused woman, for the abused sexual child, sexually abused for the, the Latino um, that discriminated upon because he was gay, um, the, the poor in my neighborhood in the southeast area of Lancaster. I've been, we've been working for justice. So then I was reading um, Miguel de la Torre. He has a book, um, The Politics of Jesus, and another African-American, um, uh, oh, it's going to skip his last name is, uh, oh, it's in my book, but he wrote to the politics of Jesus. He was the first African-American president of one of our seminaries. Oh, yes. Uh, well, okay. Hendricks, yeah. Yes, Hendricks, exactly. Thank you. So they were talking about the praxis and praxis. And was, I was reading their books. I did not want to read Yoder's because I think I have a lot of theological um, disconnect with him. So they have to be other waters. And when I was reading them, all of a sudden I said, this, this guy is already talking, talking is about just practice. Embedded in the word 
justicia, justice is the praxis. You cannot even articulate without really doing it. You know, saying something here is not right. And how do we make it right? In the making it right, we are building steps, stepping stones towards peace. But not yes, peace, but something that we are building together in community. So that's where I, I came across with this term. Um, and I tried to express it, how it, it has been with me all this time. So I discovered with the, 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 these writers and I have discovered it on and off um, with the work I've been doing. So justice is following me and I have encountered her. Not that I totally understand her, but I think that's what Jesus is all about. Amen. Elizabeth, getting right down to the root in your work around family violence, you use the analogy of a tree to get down to the root causes of violence. And you talk about denormalizing violence. In the tree's trunk is the theology of nonviolence. What are some of the kinds of practical steps that we can do towards dismantling generational cycles of violence and cultivating peaceful, nonviolent family systems. Well, that is a, you know, all these questions were, they could be a totally, a course altogether. <laughs> Made me think a lot about uh, your, um, I, I fell in love with the image of the organic aspect of trees. I love trees and actually my spirituality, I'm a tree hugger. Actually, even yesterday, it was getting dark and I said, I, I feel anxious. I need to go and, and do my prayer, and just leave it there and have Mother Nature take care of it. So the, the image of tree, uh, mother trees particularly, believe it or not, they're male, female trees. Um, don't tell, don't ask me how I know this. I just know. <laughs> so um, came the aspect of that root and trying to find, if I understand what the root of this is, then I can work on dismantling uh, or overcoming the cycle of violence, right? Um, so then I tried to go further and further down and found definitely what I knew, patriarchal. Um, then I, I was saying, then how do I break the cycle? How do I do this in, in um, uh, dismantling uh, this? And one of the things was simple as no mas. No mas. To stop and say no more. You know, not right. And this is about justice. You know, and this is the suspicion, that holy suspicion that Elizabeth Fiorenza teaches us is that you know, there is something not right here and I'm not going to participate. So the first step of dismantling saying, no, I'm not, I'm not going to participate on classism, mm. sex, uh, it, it, because to participate is, is um, even um, not, is, is, is even doing violence to my, my own persona, my own humanity. Uh, so that will be one way of dismantling. And the other is uh, teaching others as well to say no, or finding that the choir that we are saying, and figuring out if their reasons are the same or not. Um, 
So dismantling too quickly to the to the idea of how do we disarm the other violence? So I use my voice. So I use my words. So I use my 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 logic. So I use my presencia. Um, and always asking the spirit of God to help me. In moments that I've been in really situations in which I have placed myself in the middle between two violent people. And you know, I'm a small petite woman. <laughs> and I could not, and, and I said, what, what, what was I thinking of? But the aspect of spirit of God, I don't know what else to do here. Yeah. control. I just need to do this. And in, if I have to pay, pay the price, Jesus paid the price, right? It's part of that um, sacrifice. But going, trying to be, uh, how do this, I disarm the other uh, in a peaceful manner, in, a, in not dehumanizing my enemy? And that, that's the other aspect is seeing that human being as a human being, not as the... the it's been easy. It has, has been a, a way of that her say, you are just a human being like I am and loved by God. And that helped me establish a human connection. Mm -hmm. Those are those are practical ways. Um, and I'm still figuring it out, Addie. Yeah, we all are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth. Maybe we could... Um extend a little bit more of the practices of nonviolence and especially how do we model that in our, in our families and in our churches how can we make those two small communities models of nonviolence for the world or yeah. i would say i had a wonderful lesson when i was raising my girls as an active parent of two beautiful girls and then I took over two other children, a Colombian and a Dominican. Um, and they were my teachers. They were my teachers. And, and when our, um, my husband and I decided there in a the moment that we were not going to spank or yell, yell anymore to our children, that's where theology takes the road. Not when you're teaching, you're preaching, Gloria a Dios, Aleluya. It's when... <laughs> are confronted with the ugliness of that child that you birthed. <laughs> <laughs> Have mercy, help me out here. So I'm being committed every day. And today, my oldest is 27. She's in med school in University of Pennsylvania in Philly. And my youngest just got married, Sara Liliana, heading uh, to, um, to start her PhD in State College now this fall. Wow. Very wonderful Chileno. Um, and they kept me, and I can't believe this. What are you talking about? So you, 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 you and Papi became a role model. That is possible. So um, how do we break these cycles of violence? Um, using the theory of um, what we call family therapy, in which if you can change one behavior, you may be able then to produce uh, an effect, mm -hmm. a change effect, right? 
And so my husband and I tried to model that in Colombia, model that in Southeast, uh, uh, South Ann Street, model that wherever we were, even with the privacy in our children. And even when we messed up to be humble enough to say, forgive me, um, and keep on trying. So um, say it is possible if you are committed, you're gonna make mistakes. But in trying to help today, other, children, or other parents that are raising children, it is tough, it is hard. Uh, but under the grace of God, let's do it together as a community. Uh, so um, being, can I say anything more? Trying to be the imperfect me I am and trying to help others to find that um, grace of God um, and work together. And, and to make the church into a nonviolent institution, it starts in the same way or? We said it's a messy place. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All the characteristics of parenting. Family dynamics only oh, yeah. acted out in the church, totally. <laughs> yes. Um, well, um, learning how to fight sometimes. Yeah. So, um, so embedded on non, not being aggressive, not being, in which let us argue this thing out. Let us learn how to fight properly. Um, not destroying the enemy, but finding a win-win situation. See, I'm not an ethnic Mennonite. I can say that. <laughs> and, and, um, but I, I mean, I mean, through and through, Frank Albright, or Albright. But um, trying to figure this out uh, and saying in the church to say, um, this is a holy laboratory. We're learning how to be together. And if we can't get it here right, it's a lie. We can't get it anywhere. Uh. The, we, we have had arguments and disagreements. Um, we have learned to say, forgive me. You know, I was wrong in that. Or forgive me. I was right, but I didn't, I wasn't able to see your side. Um, so it's... Uh, we, I can do that with a small, in a small little church. Laurel Street is 50, 60, maybe 70. And now we're having uh, crying together uh, and, and trying to be the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, that living model and, and uh, not staying in four walls. Uh, we know that God calls us to be out there, not inside. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Well, this book, we hope that people are going to pick this book up because it has a lot of tools for the journey. And this is a woman doing theology. Uh, in your book on family violence, you reference how Mennonites have read and lived the gospel, referring to voluntary suffering such as that of Dirk Willems. When we see that classic picture of Dirk on the ice, and his captor has fallen in and Dirk pulls him out and then goes on to find that these people are going to martyr him. So you reference that and you say, we love Dirk, of course, but you contrast that voluntary suffering with imposed suffering, the imposed suffering of women and other oppressed groups. And 
we asked the question about what's the difference in a theology of nonviolence and non-resistance, sort of wondering how we deal with the, the sort of passive way of not engaging, uh, finding ways to get ourselves engaged and not be violent. Let me start with the end. For me, uh, there's no difference between the theology of nonviolence and non-resistance. For me, it's nonviolence uh, resistance. I learned from my sisters in Latin America how they had to resist violence and evil using their, their, uh, their knowledge, their bodies, their spirits, their faith and saying, uh, I cannot let you do this to me any longer. So uh, in, in my dissertation, which was uh, preempt the book, I was searching at a peace theology, right? Or, or what was given to us in the 50s and 60s by Wenger uh, and Hershberger um, and others, and even Yoder, the aspect of non-resisting uh, violence. And I can understand where they were coming from and how literally they were taking Matthew 5. And I, and I understood that. That meant that I was not going to provoke the other. So I'm just going to put aside what other. But that's not what I learned in Latin America. That's not what I learned here that you have to face it and say, you know what, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let you do that. You know what, I know, um, this is, this is not right. So to resist, but to resist non-violently. So I'm not going to raise my hands. I'm not going to, my neighbor here, who's a wonderful Puerto Rican Catholic guy said, told me uh, a few years ago, Elizabeth, you and Frank, Frank are right, are okay, because we have, we have registered guns. And I say, Edwin, we love you. You know what? We don't, we don't need, we don't need the guns. Um, so we have your back to thank you for taking, wanting to take care of us. So the aspect here of um, nonviolence resistance comes together. So then I, I figure out there are other ways of being nonviolence, more than just uh, not doing anything. Uh, and actually, that's what some of the veterans in our churches have problems. <laughs> and I'm sure, Addy, you have come across in New York City in, in my first sermon at Laurel Street, I had a veteran, a Korea War veteran, yeah. saying, standing up, actually. He stood up. Not even, I have not even finished my sermon, and he challenged me. So this is what you're telling me? So I received well that challenge, and he be um, I will never take up arms, but to me, can you go back? A moment, we lost you. Go back. We don't want to lose that piece. Let's go back from the part where he stood up and he stood up and said, "I don't, I don't believe in that type of peace you are talking about." Just like that. Charlie was like that. When there's small church or small community, he was. Uh, he had converted 10, 12 years ago. You're telling me that it the classical. If somebody's gonna kill my wife, I'm gonna let him kill you kill them and I said and then we had several conversations and I said no Charlie but we have to 
find a third way. Feeling them back may not be it, but what is the spirit calling us to do and be? Can we join together? Um, can it be resisting taking the arms and facing that person, but in a different way? Um, let's be creative here. There's more than two ways of doing this, doing nothing or doing the aggressive thing. So um, he educated me in his pain and I journeyed with him. We, we both don't agree, but again, I stand with the aspect of nonviolence resistance. We have to resist evil. And I think that's what really the scripture is talking about. Jesus resisted evil, but he didn't do it in a common Roman way or the common uh, Pharisees way. He did it the third way. And we're still discovering that third way. It has to be the spirit of God, really. And uh, doing more Anabaptist working, they, these people were more Pentecostals than I can ever know, more Holy Spirit driven. When they were being this, um, put up in the trials, you were not educated people, some of them. They can recite scripture, but it was their testimony in their life that was the power that came. So I want that Holy Spirit to take control of me when I cannot, when I have no more response. In mm. uh, that is very Baptist. And all those ways of resisting evil. Yeah. Thank you, Nellie. Um, Dr. Soto, we have a question from the audience and, and we've been so engaged with you that I think we've ignored several questions already. So uh, we have a few questions. Greg, can you see those? Um, I know uh, Steve would like to ask a question. Um, let's see, can we bring Steve in live or should we ask him to type it? Do you see his question? We usually- We ask to ask a question, but he hasn't posted the question yet. So, yeah. Okay, no, I don't see anything in chat. But okay, then maybe if you'll, if you'll uh, insert your question, we'll, we'll ask it. Elizabeth in a minute. And anybody else who has a question for, please use the Q&A function or the chat function. And Addie and I will with Elizabeth. Let me, as, as you're getting the questions, I didn't answer the volunteer suffering, non-volunteer suffering. Okay. Um, let me, um, Christianity uh, has this, uh, its history based on suffering. And his biblical interpretation has been in a suffering Christ. And more and more as I get older, um, that type of response is not good enough anymore. Um, so then in that aspect, when we prescribe suffering to um, women and children that we have to suffer for Christ's sake, I have a theological, ethical problem with that statement. Mm -hmm. Um, many of us people of color, and I'm assuming we too have suffered. So I'm not assuming that we have not suffered all the same, but we know what that is morally, physically, and so forth. But we need to, um, and then sometimes this, what we have said as um, volunteer suffering is really sacrifice. So what am I willing to live for instead of what am I willing to die? And that's what I see is doing. He was willing to live for which his father had brought him in here. 
for the cruelties he saw in his religion and to speak up. And that came as a price. Um, the consequences was that he was killed. Consequences was that through the love and mercy of Father God, the Trinity, he was resurrected. So violence and suffering did not have the last word, but the resurrected Christ. Um, so in that aspect, he's struggling between volunteer suffering and non-volunteer suffering. And what I found out of ways in domestic violence victims is that volunteer suffering um, dash volunteer, involunteer and volunteer gets all mashed up together. And what I think the best way was uh, in my struggle, right after I finished with this book, I said my next writing is going to be on suffering. It has taken me 15 years oh. to figure it out. And I knew I couldn't do it with my head. It took me two years to write that little chapter, Addie. <laughs> so, hard. so I came out with the politics of suffering in which embedded in that politics is Jesus doesn't want us to suffer. This Jesus didn't come to suffer. He came to bring life. And that's the Jesus I want to follow. So I have a lot of problems with the concept of prescribing suffering as the gist of the, of the gospel of peace by itself. So it's kind of, kind of trying to wrestle with it. And that's why I, and I don't, I, at least I bring in stories and, and try to bring in myself into that writing and produce those 16 pages. And it's an academic piece in a certain way, but it's come from La Praxis, it comes from my life and trying to figure this out as a practitioner. So do we have questions? I, I would like to ask, um, if, I mean, we are living of course in a season of terrible suffering and yeah. I'm wondering how does grief and mourning connect to peacemaking? Um, yeah. Yes, thank you. I belong to a circle of women theologians and we have um, Zoom meetings once a month. We are Catholic, Presbyterian, Baptist. Here in this a few come from Mexico and Costa Rica. But in this moment of being so isolated and one thing um, that I recognize that we did in the assembly of 2015 when we did a lament service is that we need to lament. Yeah. We need to lament. And uh, many of us, the Spirit of God was teaching, telling us things are not right. Yeah. We were already knowing things are not right in this, and we're going to be hit with something. But we didn't know what it was. And uh, the aspect of lamenting, but I won't stay only in lament. For, for me, lamenting is a way of, of even saying, um, this is not right. Uh, in, but I need to say it in, in, in grief. So what we know about grief, if you don't do a good grief, it's going to follow you the rest of your life. As pastors, we all know that. So right now I'm hoping there's a call for this Sunday to do grief, actually. And I'm, um, we're going to have a prayer of lament in our church as well. Before we celebrate, you know, Pentecostals, the fire of God, just we need to spend some time in lamenting um, that um, to a certain way as a prophet's um, habakkuk 
So we're saying, I'm saying him in Spanish. Um, uh, Hosea and Amos, Zachariah and Jeremiah were all saying, uh, prophetic, there's no peace here. We have to say things were not really well. Mm -hmm. um, and now in this isolation, more of our mental health or lack of is coming up. And I, I, can, I can testify, I've been in quarantine because I work as an interpreter here in the hospital. So I've been online and two of the patients, there were two patients in the unit that I was were detected positive. So um, I was put outside as an interpreter and that hurt because I wanna be there and it's my livelihood right now. But um, being in isolation, has, has been really full of anxiety and restlessness, not being able to sleep. And the way of saying, um, we are not well here. How do we connect with the community? How do I do connect with my church in a more deeper spiritual way and saying, I need you. Um, uh, and I live in community with my husband and another young lady that we are renting. that we have placed ourselves here and then seeing people being careless and being in, in, in celebrating in beaches and celebrating in pools and pretending this is because we don't see the enemy this virus it doesn't exist um, and it's it, that's the way it's going to attack us because we don't believe in it yeah. so I guess the lament is very important to lament and do it well before mm. we move. Yes, Addie. I was just going to say that's a public wailing wall. You know, we're we're getting online, but just just publicly a wailing wall because we know that we have depth. Can <laughs> we just to open up the space to do that? Yeah. Hey, yeah, and to cry together. And you know how much. Our leaders are suffering right now because I was just told by uh, a friend of mine that she's in New Jersey and she's pastor of pastors. And there have been a few pastors, they died out of COVID. And then their co-pastors died. And guess what? The churches have to do Zoom. Yeah. Wow, talking about grieving. Yeah. And then she has to grieve those communities as she is trying to make things work administratively wow and then the burden how do we take care of ourselves in this midst um so i need to be a uh, sister there's only the the caregiver of my parents in puerto rico uh how do i do this and feeling hopeless of uh, feeling powerless right in the weakness and in the we in our weaknesses are made strong and just trying to feel that really what is this? Auxilio Socorro Jesus So uh, yeah, we have to do this. And I think that God will will move us to the next day. But we need to we do we need to we need to do that grief and that uh, lament today together community. Which I know each individual, but I think this is a call or is a body of Christ to do it together. And we may not know how to do it together. 
Well, Ellie, yeah. that's, where, that's where you're going to bring another level of wisdom to us. I like to refer to you as a practical theologian, familiar with the challenges of serving as a pastor, and also equally familiar with the academic arena. What are some of the ways that we can address the perceived disconnect between theology as an academic discipline and the everyday on the ground work of the local churches? How can pastors today keep themselves balanced and healthy as they respond to suffering as carriers of Christ's peace? Hmm. Well, that's for self-care, right, dear sister? <laughs> so I try to do my, what is it that I need? And particularly, what is my body calling for? Um, sometimes uh, kneeling down or laying down. Sometimes I need to be praying as I'm walking, doing a prayer walk. Um, and sometimes calling up the troops and asking someone to pray for me. I miss that so much. Um, the power of having somebody. That, let, me, let, me, let me put your, my hands over your, your, your head. I, I remember as I was working for 14 months in Puerto Rico after Huracan Maria. And I was uh, helping my pastors after that traumatic uh, Mennonite pastors all over. And I was wearing that. And then I will go in and take care of my parents in Arecibo. And I will go to a pastor in San Juan. She was not part of my tradition, but I loved her. And I will go in and say, Carmen, Carmen. Yes, it's Ellie. I come for you to put your hands over me to pray. And she will laugh, and she will smile, and she will pray for me. So that power to say, and I said, why do I not ask for prayer more often? Well, because I'm a pastor, I'm a leader, I'm a, I have my act together. Oh, don't. Um, I need, and I'm in pain. Um, so let, let me do that. The aspect of spending time with scripture for me, not for that sermon or for mm -hmm. my, my Bible for my soul. Um, what is it? Psalm, este, mi alma tiene set, um, como el río brama por las corrientes de las aguas. So it's talking how the deer paths for the waters. I am thirsty. Uh, uh, that was my mother's favorite psalm to say, I am thirsty of God and to recognize that thirst. So that's part of that self-care. Um, and, and, and doing some walk because we carry it in our bodies, right? We carry it here if we're talking a lot. And I don't know about you people, I can only take so many Zoom meetings in the day. Um, I was doing Zoom teaching in March and in, in April with, sem with the seminary. I will finish totally exhausted. And I said, you know what? I don't want any more Zoom meetings this week. Um, and to just put some, some breaks on, on this thing. At the same time, I felt nurtured by Zoom meetings, an occasion in which I am receiving. So, Ellie, thank you so much. We have some questions that have been backing up here. So we want to do those and we want to invite our pastors to join you for about 20 minutes because you have a 6.30 engagement in the Zoom chat rooms. But Greg, do you see those questions? Yeah, how, would it be okay if I'll read both questions and then I'll let you answer them as one answer together 
So the first one is from Ferdian in, in um, uh, and he says, sometimes peace theology seems very easy to simplify and polishing out those you violent froze. Can you say that again? You froze. Okay. Sometimes peace theology seems very easy to simplify and polishing out those violent notions of the Bible. How do you deal with the uneasy parts in the text, such as violent verses or doctrine of creation and so on? That's one question. The other question is from, I'm sorry, I'm going to not pronounce your name well, Sibo Nukube Nukube. And this question reads, Dear Professor Elizabeth, what shape does co-cruciformity with Christ co-cruciformity with Christ look like for us in this century? Okay. So these are two questions that have come in from, from our, our, our Okay. On, and I, I misread Perdion's. It's doctrine of election, not doctrine of creation. Okay, okay. So you want me to try to uh, do it right now to um, respond? Okay. Um, and, and, and then okay. you're going into the chat room immediately after with the pastors. Okay, sounds yeah. good. So, uh, Fabian, uh, this um, peace theology seems so. So this, I um, in my uh, doctorate dissertation as a practitioner, I said, here we have an issue called family violence. Here we have peace, and here we have the church, and we have family violence in the church. Why is this in the Mennonite church? And um, I started asking myself questions like that. So then I decided to do my proposal as a project. So I developed uh, uh, three mon uh, months encounters uh, in taking our biblical principles and these scriptures more the peaceful uh, and discovering Jesus, how he responded and trying to uh, use scripture and uh, social skills towards peace uh, and learning how to practice that. So we were not sitting on this peace theology that we say, we're trying to use it with our... Um, so they are tough. Um, we cannot pretend to put our peace theology lens and trying to put come out and make them peaceful at the other end. So first of all, recognizing their tough uh, verses there. And this is where the Presbyterian and, and the other brothers and sisters tradition takes us. It's, oh, we believe in the peaceful Jesus. What, what does this mean? So then I do my own homework in the Greek and not trying it to confirm according to my peace theology. And I have found that Jesus was um, in, a, in a resisting way, confronting violence in a very creative way. And people would say he was aggressive. Um, so was actually to approach very openly the text and say, yeah, this is very violent. Therefore, um, I need to accept it. I need to reconcile it. Because a lot of us, that the criticism that we get as Mennonites, as those of us who believe in peace theology from Protestants is they don't believe in a peace, peaceful Jesus. I have people in seminary, professors,
uh, Old Testament and saying, where is he? Because I read the same scripture that you read and I can't get it. Um, so I've, I've had some of them, you just can't convince the other. Um, but the, but the, uh, the aspect has been, we need to make um, more work on those and recognize that they're tough verses. Um, yes, Jesus was quite aggressive in violence when he moved the, the tables in, in the temple. There's no way of saying no. Um, so what does that mean? He got upset. He was a human being. He saw injustices. He got upset and he did something about it. He did a demonstration. Um, so in this aspect, then how do we take core Bible courses, uh, uh, verses that are our core and take those others that presents a new text. Just embracing them, working them, and having them speak what they need to speak to us. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so, so very much. We have one more question. I think we can take that to the, to the chat room after. Um, before we finish, would you pray for us? And, and after that, immediately we'll extend our hands towards you. And yeah, let's pray for each other. But would you pray? Claro, claro. And um, pray in Spanish, pray in, in, in any language you like. Okay, yes, thank you. I will. I do want to pray in Spanish. I would like that, yeah. Santo Dios de la gloria, te alabamos y te glorificamos. Dios de amor y Dios verdadero. Dios de la vida. Te doy gracias por nuestros espacios cibernéticos. Te doy gracias por mis hermanos, mis hermanas, donde quiera que ellos estén. Tratando de ser fiel ahí donde ellos están. Dios de amor y de misericordia. Hemos encontrado en la palabra que eres un Dios que promueves chalón. Hemos encontrado en la persona de Jesús un Dios hecho, encarnado en la humanidad, tratando de, de vivir este mensaje de paz. Y así queremos ser nosotros. Tenemos el Espíritu Santo que nos equipa, como equipó los anabautistas del siglo XVI para vivir y encontrar este Evangelio de la paz. Señor, esté tú con nosotros siempre, en estos momentos de dolor y agonía, de duelo, de pérdida pero también con nosotros en estos tiempos de encuentros con tu palabra, con tu Espíritu Santo. Dios, tú nos estás hablando a cada uno de nosotros como líderes, pastoras, pastores, teólogos, practicantes de, de tu palabra. Nos estás hablando, Señor, y es un mismo Espíritu. Que tú estás con los que duelen, con los que sufren. Tú eres un Dios de sufrimiento, soy un Dios de amor. Que verdadero amor echa fuera todo temor. Mi Dios, y creemos que realmente la esencia de la paz es el amor de Cristo Jesús. Esté con nosotros y con cada uno de los facilitadores. Esté con nosotros en el día de hoy y con nuestras familias. Y haznos instrumentos de tu paz verdadera. En el nombre de Dios Padre, Dios Hijo y Dios Espíritu Santo. Amén. Amén. Amén.